Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, well, just looking at the first five verses, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. Today's message, a result, not a goal. Last week, we talked about the fact that some, perhaps many Christians, struggle with the issue of assurance. Now, we did that in the larger context of how Paul, far from being the man who torpedoes the law of God to get rid of it so we can all walk around, you know, following unicorns and rainbows and that kind of thing, Rather, he is the great promoter and the advocate of the law of God as our way of life. Now, in these verses today, we see that Paul speaks of how we can maintain our commitment to Christ, even as we continue to struggle with the sin in our lives. Now, we have other chapters to go before we complete this study in the book of Romans, but what we have here today is significant in that Paul is more or less drawing a conclusion to all that he's written in the first seven chapters. As a matter of fact, we have here one of the best statements of how God brings us and keeps us in a covenant relationship to him. That is, into a right relationship with himself, and then keeps us in that right relationship. As we heard and read, here is where we have that well-known and great declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with the, uh, I'll say now, old evangelism explosion program developed by the late Dr. D. James Kennedy and the congregation at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida and Fort Lauderdale. It was all the rage in terms of especially Uh, Reformed churches doing sort of door-to-door personal evangelism. And if you've ever done that, you know anything about it, one of the two questions that you put to the potential convert in the evangelistic encounter is, Brother, if you died today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Or maybe put it slightly differently, how can you be sure that on the day you stand before God, you will not be condemned? Now, people have given various answers when that question or those questions are put to them. But the prevailing humanism of our culture typically would respond in this way if they were asked that question. You know, I doubt there's a God at all, so it really doesn't matter. I don't think there's going to be any kind of judgment, and therefore I'm okay. I don't need to fear being condemned by God. Now, there are others who would maybe have some sense of there being a deity, how, how be it the uh, Unitarian Universalist version, and they might say something like this in response. Oh, the reason I don't need to fear being condemned by God is that God is going to bring everybody into his kingdom. God is going to save everybody, is another way of putting it. 
But you see, back of these responses is an arrogance that gives people the idea that they are the ones who determine their own future. There's no sovereign God who prevails over everything. Now, that's not a new idea at all. It's not something that was cooked up just in the past 10, 15, 25 years. As far back as the late 18th, early 20th, 19th, early 20th century, the um, famous poet William Ernest Henley, maybe you know his poem more than you know him, Invictus, or maybe you know this line from that poem more than you know the title of the poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you know, here in these verses, Paul is not really concerned about how the pagans and the unbelievers will handle things on Judgment Day. No, instead, he is asking the question of Christians. How can we have assurance the day that we stand before God that we will not be condemned? What is it that we trust in that empowers us to say, there is now no condemnation for us? Well, Paul's answer is because you, I, we have been justified by God. Look again at what he says in verse 1. I'm going to read it from a slightly different translation. There is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, condemnation will never come to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now it needs to be said at this point that people today, they reject the idea of a wrathful God. And, you know, the Greek word translated here as condemnation, we'll come back to that Greek word in just a moment, but I think it's worth noting that in the old Latin version of the New Testament, probably not one of us in here reads Latin all that well, if at all, but you need to understand that for, I don't know, a thousand years, the Bible was read in Latin in the Roman Catholic Church. The priests, the scholars, the the theologians, that was the main language. So there was a need to have this put into the Latin language, and it was the prevailing language of of the Roman Empire, of course, apart from Greek. I'm saying this because this word translated condemnation in the Latin text reads damnation. Therefore, there is now no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that there is no damnation, no condemnation to those who are in Jesus because those who are in Christ do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But you know, the good news is that even as we struggle with sin, we can be assured of our salvation, of our justification, because we have this promise. There is no condemnation for us if we're in Christ, because our justification is purely the work, the action of Almighty God in His Spirit. God acknowledges that our sins have been credited against Christ Jesus, and that his righteousness has been credited to us. Therefore, he declares us not guilty. As our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it in the question dealing with justification, it describes justification as an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins. He accepts us as righteous in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. There is therefore now no condemnation. Notice what he says in verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Understand, condemnation is the opposite of justification. When the Lord justifies us, 
That closes the deal, so to speak. He has already pronounced the verdict of not guilty over us that we will one day hear when we stand before God Almighty. And that is an irreversible thing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the only people who can take comfort in the reality that they will not be condemned are those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, again, in our time, there is confusion about how we are justified before God. I mean, we have the the Roman Catholic explanation for that, which is, of course, contrary to Scripture and contrary to our confessional standards. But that's a subject for a different time. We also, though, have many people who think, and this is a part of the confusion regarding being justified before God, they think that all religions are equally valid and true ways to God. Uh, You know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the top of the mountain has many paths. They all lead to the same place. You know, that kind of New Age type thinking theology. But that's not what Paul teaches here at all. He says very simply that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no justification apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Rushduni makes an important observation about this, talking about Paul and supposedly people who want to cast him as an antinomian. Dr. Rushduni said that for a man who supposedly was determined to free us from the law of God, he certainly talks a lot about it. Now, something else that we need to heed here is to what Paul is saying. It's judicial. It is courtroom terminology. I I mentioned before the Latin phrase uh, that it translates damnation. The Greek word in which this text was written is the Greek word katakrima, and Paul's readers would have understood that term as soon as they heard it or read it because it refers to a sentence that has been passed. A sentence with an implied judgment of guilty and condemnation. It's a legal term. And it implies a court of law, a court proceeding. And so, he says in verse 1, because we are in Christ Jesus, we have a transformed relationship to the court and to the presiding judge. No sentence is passed against us. We are acquitted because we have the sentence that's been passed and executed on our representative, Christ Jesus. We are in Christ, free from condemnation, when we manifest the life of Christ in us. Now look again at verse 5, this part of it. He says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Another translation has it this way. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So then... No condemnation means that we are declared justified in the court. John Calvin, in his commentary on these passages, he emphasizes that although justification leaves us without condemnation before this court of God, and this is the important thing he says here, apart from that, he says that does not remove us (coughs) from being under the fall and its curse. And you see... It's at that point, this sort of crossroads, that Christians have tried to deal with this important matter and this realization. Praise God, Scripture teaches me that I am 
I am justified by God. I'm declared not guilty according to God's covenant law. But wait a minute. If we believe that we have been indeed justified by the actions of God's free grace, then we have to face the reality of how we live and act, don't we? So coming to that crossroad, <coughs> excuse me, some Christians have, have sought to, to bring their personal holiness in line with their justification by pursuing holiness or sanctification directly. Let, let me explain that in case that's not quite clear to you. Through the long history of the Christian church, there have been various Results from people attempting to deal with this dilemma, this crossroad. I'm justified, but I'm still prone to sin. I still sin. And so that's led to, for example, uh, ascetic practices. Monks moving out into deserts and far-off places, walling themselves in from the world, doing nothing but praying and reading scripture and chanting 24 hours a day. On the Protestant evangelical side, it's led to pietism and revivalism, endless soul searching and verbal or self-flagellation and things such as that. And and that approach has been fairly common across denominations in Christianity. So that the, the pursuit of personal holiness, that becomes the whole point of the life in Christ. And just the fact that I'm I'm implying that there's something not quite right about that, it, it probably sounds totally bizarre to people. You see, some folks, they treat this as using Google Maps or a GPS system. You just type in the word holiness or living a holy life, and you know, the little balloon pops up, and that's the fixed point, and bang, you're off to the races. But you see, holiness, sanctification, is not the goal, but the result of our justification. Frankly, in some churches, that Google Maps approach to holiness It can border on blasphemy. Let me ask you, what if you were in a Sunday school class at a new church you were attending, either for new members or new Christians, and each person was asked around the table to say a little bit about themselves and what they hope to get out of the class, and the guy sitting next to you says that his goal is to be a saint. Uh, My goal is to be as holy as I possibly can, holier than anybody. But think about it. Think about that for just a moment. I think we can agree that if you can think of at least one example of someone, be they well-known, famous and throughout history or even modern times, or maybe somebody you just know personally, that we could all agree that person is a saintly, holy person. I think we'd also realize that what drives a person like that is their desire to serve the Lord. Being designated saintly or holy by others is merely a byproduct of that goal of serving God Almighty, of obeying His law. And that then is what characterizes the biblical approach to this whole thing. That holiness is a byproduct of a life of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, to His law, and to His calling on your life. If we truly desire to be holy, then our life's motto should come straight from Matthew 26, 42. Jesus said, Not my will, but thine, O Lord, be done. There's nothing in what Jesus said there. There's nothing in anything Paul writes here or, frankly, anywhere in the Bible about the need for, quote, revival. And do we understand why that is so? It is because the law of God is the way of holiness. Classic examples come to us in the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. 
I'll just cite one very quickly in passing. In the accounts in those two books of the reign of good King Josiah of Judah, he came into power as a young man presiding over a nation that was corrupt, decadent, idol-worshipping, not unlike our own society. And he set about to do what was right in the eyes of God, and he followed in the path of the good kings. And during the time of his reign, the temple had fallen into disrepair. There were, there were repairs being done and cleanup jobs. And one of the priests, in working in the temple, discovered something covered, I'm embellishing it a little bit, okay, covered with dust and cobwebs, and he dusted it off, and it was a copy of God's law. And he took it to the king and he said, while we were cleaning up, we found this. And when Josiah saw it and had it read to him, he realized what it was. I don't remember the exact wording, but he, he pounded his breast, he tore his clothes, and he said, brothers, we have not been faithful to what God has done and called us to do. And that led, friends, not to a revival, but to a reformation, a dedicated obedience and going back to what God had called them to do. Now, if you want to call that a revival, I guess you can. But in the popular terminology, that's not what most people mean by it. God's law is the way of holiness. Paul says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Now, at that point, we should stop and deal with this never-ending confusion, again, with how some folks confuse God's law and God's grace. We talked about that last time, and I would encourage anyone who didn't hear that message to go back and listen to last, last week's message. Here, let's just ask this question. If Paul is so hostile to the law, why does he twice use the word in just this one verse? And the way some of our Reformed brothers talk about this, you'd think that Paul believed that the law given to Moses was completely obsolete. The word of God emeritus, you know. And that he, when he talks about the law of spirit of, of the spirit versus the law of sin and death, that he's that he's talking about some vague, mystical new law floating around up there in the atmosphere to be miraculously revealed to us by the spirit. But no, 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 that's not at all what Paul is saying here. That's something some modern person is reading into this text. Paul operates on the ground that the stated, spoken word of God is his law. And further, that it communicates God's justice, God's righteousness. And when we break God's covenant law, it is sin and death to us. Remember our oft-quoted proverb, Proverbs 8.36? God says, all who sin against me injure themselves. All those who hate me are in love with death. That means that the law of sin works in us because our rebellion against God leads us into that pursuit if we're not reborn in the pursuit of death. And can we not agree that that describes the entire American culture in these times? It is a pursuit of death. All around we have people promoting things that they think are promoting love. and Well, not tolerance, I don't use that word anymore, but this vague nonsensical term love. It's all about love. I'm not going to be denied the right to love the person I want and all the rest of that. Where, in fact, the lifestyles that are being promoted, whether it be something like homosexuality, transhumanism, genetic engineering, these are all pathways 
racetracks to death and destruction. In Christ, however, the law is in harmony with and expressive of the Holy Spirit of life. And that's what gives us covenant blessings. And friends, let us not be unaware that behind the confusion and distortion between this idea of the law of God and and the rest of these things, it's an age-old false teaching. Yes, we've had occasion to mention this before. And here, it's confronting us again. In the earliest church, within the first 100, 200 years of the Christian church, there were a few people promoting the idea, the belief, that they're actually... Two gods, two different deities represented in the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament, the God of law, the God of justice, the God of wrath and hate. But these people claimed that the God of the New Testament, this different God, is the God of love, the God of mercy. One man in particular who strongly promoted those ideas was the heretic Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. His father was a bishop. Before he died in the year A.D. 60, 160, excuse me, A.D. 160, Marcion had gathered a substantial following of disciples. His belief system totally rejected the belief in the unity of Scripture, and his belief system, therefore, itself was totally rejected by several of the early church fathers, especially Tertullian. Now you might say, well, that's a nice lesson in church history, Pastor. What's that got to do with us? Well, you see, for us, the problem is that his erroneous ideas didn't die with him, and they have persisted in various forms to this very day. And that means, for you and me, we must be diligent to interpret the book of Romans, not in terms of Marcion, not in terms of, like we mentioned last week, John Nelson Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible and the Dispensationalist, but in terms of Jesus and Paul. And not seeking to divide the word of truth into contradictory sections, reading it as the one whole word of God Almighty. So we close out this part of our study, and let's do so remembering these three things. First of all, the purpose God had in view when sending Christ into this world was not only our justification, but also our liberation from the condemnation of the law, also our sanctification. That's why Christ came. Secondly, sanctification consists in the fulfilling of the righteous requirements of the law. Although obedience to the law, hear me carefully, is not the ground of our justification. We don't good work our way into heaven, in other words. Nevertheless, our obedience to law is the fruit of our justification, the very meaning of sanctification. If you've never done so, I strongly encourage you to read chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not very long, it's not very technical, but it's one of the most succinct, excellent summaries of what the Bible teaches about the relationship to good works, that is, holy living, to being justified, to being, quote, saved, as some people call it. Uh, The the late, great Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle used to say, don't show me your justification without your sanctification. And by that he meant that a profession of faith, that it's useless unless it is accompanied by a transformed life. And thirdly and finally, holy holy living, holiness, sanctification is the work of God's Holy Spirit. God has given his spirit to empower and enable obedience to his law. So holiness is the result of our larger goal of being obedient to the standard 
that God has given, the standard by which we are to live, the standard that is to be our way of life. Let us pray.